0: I praise you, Lord Jesus, that all the promises of God are yes in you. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will hold you up with the right hand of my righteousness. So we receive your promises of help. And we ask that now, in this moment, you would draw near And be our teacher and our rock. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And if you're not sure where it is, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. there it is, tucked away at the end of the book of Judges for a reason. And the reason the book is positioned at the end of the book of Judges is because the first verse of Ruth tells us that it takes place during the time of the Judges, hence the position in the Bible. In fact, it might help before I read part of it for you to notice the last verse of the book of Judges, which is the next verse before the first verse of Ruth. You see that? The last verse in the book of Judges is this In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a summary of the book of Judges and a summary of the time of the Judges. Namely, it was a very dark time. It was a time of moral collapse. It was a time of human autonomy with everybody deciding for themselves what they would do with no king to draw them into line. And it was one of the darkest seasons in the history of Israel, and that is the setting for this beautiful book of Ruth. So let's read the first chapter of the book of Ruth. I'd love to read it all, but that would take too much of our time. First chapter, in the days when the judges, so you see the reference, in the days when the judges Ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the sons' names were Melon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she rose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab, in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal with you kindly as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her no we will return with you to your people but naomi said turn back my daughters why will you go with me have i not have I, have i yet sons in the womb that they may become your husbands turn back my daughters Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death separates me from you. Then Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her. She said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which in Hebrew means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Do not call me Naomi. Call me who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Before I pray and ask for the Lord's help in applying this text to your situation, let me first thank the elders for trusting me with this raw, and vulnerable moment in the life of your church. And then let me tell you in what capacity I feel that I am here. I think I'm here in three capacities. Number one, I am a herald of the Word of God. A God of great holiness not to be trifled with a God of great mercy and a God of sovereign power that I believe most of us share and love. Second, I'm here because I love Bob and Gail and their family. And there rises up in me great sorrow and anger. And I'll pause over that word anger for just a moment because it's a dangerous word. The Bible says the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. I'm suspicious of my anger. I have a lot of it. One of my problems. I'm suspicious of my anger. But when all of taking the log out of your eye is over and submission to the sovereignty of God is over, there remains a holy anger that is both right and necessary. Do not let the sun go down on your holy anger. So I come come in the second capacity as one who who loves this family, loves Bob, and uh, was incensed at what he did. Third, I come to you as one who has walked through this 20 years ago with you, with one of the staff members at our church. The memories are fresh and horrible. We were in those days a cauldron of conflicting emotions. Sadness, disillusionment, confusion, anger, devastation, fear, numbness, We lost 230 people from Bethlehem, from the 1,200 or so who were attending in those days. We did not see any growth in our church for three years as we bowed under the heavy hand of God's discipline. the elders were doing what they believed to be right and they were loved for it and admired for it and hated for it. The sword that cut through our church wounded and destroyed and healed and saved. I'll give you a picture of that. One Sunday Finished ministering the word in the midst of the horrible situation that you're in. And a woman walked straight down the front aisle. I'm standing there. She stood in front of me, a longtime member of the church, put her finger in my face and said, You are the most arrogant man I have ever known. Then there was a single mom who, on the night when we, as elders, lined up, and presented our disciplinary plan for the pastor. It was ice in the air. You could have cut it. The people were not on the same page with regard to what should be done. So here's this single mom who's visiting the church for the first time. She had no idea what she was walking into. She had a 13-year-old daughter with her. She told me this later. And she said to me later, My daughter was sitting there, trembling through the whole service. She'd never seen anything like this. And she said to her mom when she got home, I want to go back there. That was real. The sword was cutting in two directions. A parenthesis here about children. If you was 13, most 13-year-olds can get these things. But what about the five-year-olds? What about the seven-year-olds, the eight- year-olds? How are you doing this in your family? I want to encourage you to do something. Don't miss this opportunity. It is not what you wanted. It is horrible. This is not the way kids should experience things. They have, they do. Now what are you going to do? And I want to encourage you to get down at their level, look them right in the eye at home, and teach them massively important things they'll never forget because of this moment. Teach them. Teach them. Teach them the power of sin like they've never tasted it. Teach them the sacredness of marriage with illustrations. Teach them the gift and effort of self-control and how they relate. Teach them the qualifications of eldership and why consequences follow. And teach them, perhaps the most complex of all, the difference between forgiveness and trust. And the necessity at times of looking into a man's face and saying, I forgive you and I do not trust you. Forgiveness is free and granted for the repenting, asking. Trust is built and earned and takes a long time when it's destroyed. You, You have a babysitter and suddenly you find out the babysitter's been stealing or worse, abusing your kids and the babysitter collapses in a pool of penitent tears and says, I'm Sorry, please forgive me. You must. But you don't have to hire her again. And you shouldn't. Trust. This is hard. This the kids have to begin to grasp. I want to go back there. It was real. It was real, it was horrible real. Let's pray. Father, that's who I am coming here, a herald of the Word, a friend of the family in the church, and a, a chastened pastor, a chastened pastor who would not presume to think, won't happen under my watch. So God, Help us right now. We want to hear your word, not a pastor's opinions. So come and speak, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story of Ruth is taking place in a horrible time. Everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And I want us to get the big picture before we look at these amazing details. So to get the big picture in Ruth, Let's look at the last verse of the book. Chapter 4, verse 22, goes like this at the end. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. End of book. What's that about? Well, Obed is the son of Ruth, who was not gonna have any children. She'd been childless for ten years of marriage, didn't know that a Boaz Redeemer kinsman existed. She's just heading into black darkness of future with Naomi. And Naomi. then there was a Boaz, and then there was an opened womb, and then there was a a child named Obed, and then there was a son named Jesse, and then there was a son named David who named the lineage into which the son of David lands, Messiah, King Jesus, God of all. That's what's happening in chapter 1. That's what's happening in this horrible time in chapter 1 is all that was being prepared. That's the big picture of the book of Ruth. It's the big picture of the Bible, right? That's that's the story of the Bible over and over again. Horrible darkness, no way out, God preparing for King Jesus. So there's the big picture. And we will see especially the darkness of chapter 1, but the rays of light shining at the end of it. You are living in chapter 1 of Ruth. That's why I chose the book and chapter 4 is coming. Indeed, Matthew 1 is coming because Ruth is named in Matthew 1 as one of the ancestors of Jesus, a Moabite foreign woman who couldn't have any children is one of the great-great-great-great-grandmothers of Jesus. I hope that the effect of this message will be that God will raise up from among you, ordinary members, Boaz like men and Ruth like women. We haven't met Boaz yet. And we haven't seen Ruth in her greatness yet. But they are both great. They are great. And this is a time for great women. The women, perhaps, who feel the most violated, the most vulnerable, This is a time for great women, great strong women. Like Ruth, you'll see her in just a minute. And men, Boaz dealt with her so carefully, so gently, so discreetly, so uprightly, he did. This is a great book with a great woman and a great man leading to a great future. So that's what I'd like to see happen. Women and men raised up like that. Verses 1 to 5 is all about the misery of Naomi. There's a famine. That's where it starts. A famine. So the first thing is she and her family, Elimelech and the boys, don't have enough food. And so they solve that problem by moving away. Now, Naomi knows beyond the shadow of a doubt where famines come from. They come from God. Psalm 105, verse 16 says, God summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread. That's what God does. God sends rain. God causes the sun to shine. Grain grows up bread is made we have enough to eat and when the rains don't come we don't have enough to eat and she knows where that's coming from. God has dealt bitterly with me is the refrain of her life and she's right. Then there's this decision to go to Moab, pagan land. I don't think they should have done that. Foreign gods there, they're playing with fire. And, lo and behold, their sons marry against the law Moabite women. It's a dangerous thing. They can draw you away from the faith. So the Bible was against it. Now, if you were Naomi You would tremble because you would see what's coming and it came her husband died Her sons and daughters were barren for ten years in their marriage verse 4 and The boys died and if you were Naomi You would probably said we shouldn't have come Famine, move to a pagan Moab, death of her husband, marriage of her sons to foreign women, two barren marriages, death of her sons. That's a lot of blows. So you, quite apart from the situation at Redeemer, may have felt already, this is my life. Blow after blow after blow after blow. How many can there be? Naomi surely must have thought and said very clearly, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And she's right. Verse 6, what's going to happen next? The Lord has visited his people and given them food. She hears that in the field. A rumor has it that the famine is lifted. Judah has food again. The Lord gave, the Lord took away, the Lord is giving Again, and so she decides to return to Judah with her two daughters in law, Ruth and Orpah. And then in verses 8 to 13, evidently for some reason, changes her mind while they're on the way and tries to persuade them to go home. <coughs> Verse 11 Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? that they may become your husbands. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Now, that wouldn't make any sense at all, unless you know a custom in the Old Testament that uh, if a, a brother who's married dies, the brother of that brother can marry the remaining wife and raise up children and seed to the name of that brother. That was a sacrificial thing that brothers would do to preserve the the name and the lineage of his dead brother. And what Naomi is saying is, Malon and Chilion don't have any brothers. And I'm too old that if I had a baby tonight, you wouldn't wait for him to marry, to fill in... And therefore, if you're committed to their name, you're committed to widowhood and childlessness for the rest of your life. So go home and turn it around and find another husband. It won't work to go with me. It doesn't work that way in Israel. That's how she's trying to persuade them to go home. Verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. In other words, don't come with me because if you come with me, all I experience from God these days is bitterness and opposition and that's what your lot is going to be. So go home. And here is where Ruth is absolutely Astonishing. Astonishing. Which is why I want you women to be Ruth-like women here. Verse 14, Orpah kissed Naomi goodbye, and Ruth clung to her. Not even another leave from Naomi, in verse 15, for her to leave can get Ruth to go away. And so Naomi is trying her best to present Ruth's future as dark and bleak and hopeless as it is going to be, and Ruth walks into that darkness instead of away from it. I thought one of the ways I could have preached on this was to say this situation at Redeemer is going to separate the Orpas and the Ruths. Orpah, when she heard a description of what a future with Naomi and with the God of Israel would mean, left. It's too dark. It's too bleak. It's too, too much bitterness. Too much trouble. And Ruth stared into that darkness and said, I'm there. I'm going. That's weird. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's strange. That, that requires some remarkable explanation. So let's read Ruth's words. Verses 16 and 17. Entreat and me not to leave you, Naomi, entreat me not to leave you, That's the old fashioned word, entreat. Or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if even death parts me from you. This is astonishing. This is an astonishing commitment. What does it mean for Ruth to go with Naomi? Number one, it means leaving her own family and land. So she probably had an extended family in Moab and and she's going to walk away from that family. Number two, it means a life of widowhood and childlessness. Neither of them knows anything about Boaz. Boaz is not on the scene yet. God knows Boaz. They don't. So as far as she knows, no children, no marriage. I'm just with my mother-in-law. Three, it means going to an unknown land, new people, new customs, new language. And here's the one that amazes me. It means that her commitment to her mother is stronger than marriage. You see that? Because she says... Verse 17, where you die, I will die and there be buried. You'd never say that to a husband. Till death do us part. Not if you die in Minneapolis and I'm 40, I'm staying and dying in Minneapolis. No way would I promise that to my wife or anybody. What is that? She's, she is saying, if you're 20 years older than I am, you die at 60, I'm 40, I'm not going home. I'm going to die and be buried right beside you, Naomi. That's amazing. That is amazing. Where'd that come from? What, what is going on here? And surely the most amazing commitment is, is in verse 16. Your God will be my God. Your God will be my God. Now you do realize how <laughs> Naomi has only painted a bleak picture of being a friend of God. Verse 13, The hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. He has dealt bitterly with me. I mean, is that the way you witness to people to try to win them to Jesus? Come to Jesus. He deals bitterly with his children. He goes forth against them. He strikes blows to their churches and their marriages. Keep a walk away from a God who deals bitterly with them. But not Ruth. Not Ruth. Ruth hears all this word of God is dealing bitterly with me coming from Naomi and she says I want your God. I'm not leaving. Redeemer is walking through the bitter providence of chapter one, and this will separate the orpas from the ruths. She has seen something glorious in this God that she cannot walk away from. We don't know how she saw it. Could have been 10 years with Chilean. Maybe he was a good man, wonderful man knew God. I don't know. But she knew God now. And she's saying to Naomi, I'm not leaving your God. The God of Israel is my God. Your covenant God, my God. I'm staying right there with your God. After you're dead, I'm with your God. In your land, with his people. That's who I am. That's my new identity. That's amazing. In the light of all the bitterness that Naomi spoke of. And experienced. So they return, verse 19, they return to Bethlehem. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that Bethlehem is where they go? Bethlehem. Town of horror, town of hope. the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is born in Bethlehem and Herod cuts down all the kids in Bethlehem. Is Is there any place in life that isn't like that? No, there isn't. The sword is always slicing in two directions. So they recognize her, at least they think they do, is this Naomi? Verse 19. And she responds to them. Ruth has to listen to this again. Do not call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. For the, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? <coughs> Wait a witness to the greatness of God, Naomi. I, I, what do you think of Naomi's theology here? I would take Naomi's theology here over the sentimental views of God in our culture any day. N- Naomi knows three things beyond the shadow of a doubt. Number one, God exists. Number two, God is sovereign. Number three, God has gone forth against me. She knows. It never entered her mind, nor the mind of any saint in the Old Testament to solve the problem of their evil by denying the sovereignty of God, never. God exists, God is sovereign. And God brought the famine, God took my husband, God took my sons, God made the women barren, and God has brought me back empty. That's all true. What's her problem? She has a problem. She's wrong about coming back empty. What happens when you when your life is just burdened with one burden after the other. Wave after wave after wave of bitter providences crash over your life. What happens is you can't see anymore. If somebody would wave a flag of hope in your face, you couldn't see it. You didn't come back empty. You have roots. you're not empty she's also forgetting her Bible like the story of Joseph Genesis 37 to 50 one of my favorite stories in the Bible go to it over and over again because I feel like I just lived between his being sold into slavery and his becoming the vice president of Egypt took about 13 years 13 years or so, for him to be ripped off by his brothers, sold as a slave, lied about and cheated by Potiphar, who accused him of sleeping with his wife when she's setting that up, and it didn't happen, and then he gets thrown into prison for two more years. At any point along the way, Joseph could have rightly said the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. But evidently Joseph held his peace and waited 13 years of inexplicable abuse. And then he becomes the vice president of Egypt and saves the sons of Jacob that Sold him into slavery by feeding. That's what Naomi has forgotten. He's forgotten those stories and how God works in the world. All she can see is, I came back empty. I came back empty. I once had a husband. I once had sons. She's right to believe in the sovereignty of God, and she's wrong to be blind to the signs of his merciful purposes signs like Ruth and signs like this look at verse 22 they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest I love that if I were to title this message it would be bitter providence and barley harvest If you you don't know the book, that won't mean anything to you. So let me try to tell you what that means. It is laden, it is laden with hope. So here she comes back, as far as she knows, Ruth is not going to have any husband, and she's not going to have any children. She has a mother-in-law who's got a sour attitude towards God, and a future of Childlessness and no husband. And there's a barley field owned by a man named Boaz, a good man, an upright man, a righteous man, an older man who's kept himself pure all these years. And she goes down there to glean in the field because she's poor and people who are poor are allowed to go around the edges and pick up what's left over after. And Boaz sees her and he likes her. He likes her. And he wonders about her. And he makes sure there's enough left on the field for her to have. And her mother-in-law tells her who who he is. Lo and behold, he is a kinsman. He could do what I thought nobody could do for you. If the two of you got together, your husband's name would be preserved. You could have a child. I could have a grandson. And maybe there is a future. But these two people, Ruth and Boaz, are as pure as the driven snow. They are so careful. They are so upright. They are so delicate about this. And so Ruth goes down there. Boaz talks to her and says, just be careful. You don't go among the younger men. You can't tell what they might do. We'll take care of you. He was going to guard this woman, make sure she was kept safe. And then her mother said, Why don't you go down there and show him in the middle of the night that you'd like to marry him. And it could have gone all wrong. But those two people are not that way. And Boaz says... Not tonight. We will make this right. I will find out whether there's another kinsman closer than I. And if there's not, I'll have you. Old as I am, young as you are, Moabite, though you be. Turns out the other kinsman who was closer didn't want Ruth. And so Boaz married Ruth. And God opened her womb after 10 years of childlessness and they had Obed who bore Jesse, who bore David, who bore Jesus, so to speak. Don't be blind when mercy drops around you or falling in the desert. Of these days. She couldn't see the mercy drops. She couldn't make any sense out of Ruth. She didn't know what it means that it's barley harvest. These stories are in the Bible so that you won't make that mistake. Judge not the Lord, we sang this, judge not the Lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work right now in Redeemer, scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, he will make it plain. I said to the uh, pastors and elders before the first service as we were chatting, I said, My main word, and there are many words, is don't rush this pain. Don't rush this sorrow. Don't rush this brokenness. Don't heal this lightly. Chapter 1 famine, broke foreign country, foreign wives, barren marriages, dead husband, dead sons, lost daughter-in-law. That's chapter 1 and that's the where where you live right now, in this church. That's chapter one. And it is barley harvest. It is. And those who have eyes to see can see it. I can see it. I can see it three, four, five, six, seven years from now. A mighty church. Mighty in the spirit. Mighty in the word of God. Mighty in salvation. So I have no idea in God's providence how long God may keep you in chapter 1. For Bethlehem, it was about three years. I can almost date the moment his hand lifted and we took off again under his favor. I don't know. There's no sacred number. I just know that however long he has you in chapter 1 doing the necessary painful work, Don't begrudge him. Say if you have to, the Lord has dealt bitterly with us. Naomi said it. It was true. Say that. But don't say it to the expense of not even seeing Ruth, not even seeing the barley harvest coming into ear. Don't, Don't say it to the exclusion of your confidence in the sovereignty of God. Bear the mighty hand of God. Patiently trust his sovereignty. Look away to your Savior in his sovereign timing and know that there's coming a day when this church is going to be more mighty in the Word of God, more mighty in the Holy Spirit, more mighty in fruitfulness in this city. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we submit to your Sovereign providences, bitter as they sometimes are. And we know from this story, from the story of Joseph, from the story of Esther, and from dozens of other stories and texts in the Bible that you work these things in inexplicably mysterious ways together for the triumph of your gospel and the good of your people and the glory of your name. Make us patient. And as the sword does its work, let there be Much salvation, much healing, much that's real. In this church, I pray, Jesus' name.